So today I wanted to continue the exploration of why we practice outdoors. And hopefully at this point in the retreat it's quite obvious, but it doesn't hurt to just reflect on you know, facets of that. In particular, I want to look at the, the Dharma dimensions of nature practice, how, how nature reveals the Dharma in all kinds of ways, obvious and subtle, and, um, and just bring them to mind may invite for yourselves uh, a more conscious emotion or reflection or attunement to some of these um, principles or laws. So there's a line from Kabir, um, the poet Kabir, and in, in this piece he says, when the eyes and the ears are awake, even the leaves on the trees read like pages from the scriptures. When the eyes and the ears are awake, even the leaves on the trees, even the aspen leaves, read like pages from the scriptures. So I think that's a lovely summary of what I want to speak about. When we're awake, when we're present, when we're noticing, when we're tuned, and we bring that contemplative presence outdoors, there's a lot of discovery can happen, a lot of insight, a lot of understanding, a lot of opening. And, you know, that's partly why I do this work, as pleasurable as it is, and as enjoyable as it is, and lovely as it is, right? there's much deeper dimensions to the practice. for yourself about what you know what are the wisdom teachings that you notice here as you walk and sit and look and listen and smell and touch and get quiet how does nature inform you teach you and just listening to various sharings in the groups today, just hearing some of those themes. And the most obvious teaching which we've been looking at and feeling and living in is the teaching of a nature of change, transience, impermanence, that is so palpable, so visceral, so immediate, so ever-present. I just look at the aspen leaves for a moment. And we see change, right, in this beautiful rustling and dazzling, shimmering. You know, when we sit inside, we're more orienting to stillness. And, um, you know, there's a certain kind of stability, which is also very lovely and very supportive for meditation. Stillness supports the samadhi and concentration. But the, there's not, we're not noticing, we're not 
being impressed upon by change except the change in our own organism where there's plenty of change going on. But when we sit outside and as we do all day, every day, and we're just present to all kinds of movements, fluctuations, right? From the light, from the rising sun to the setting sun to the movement of the elements, the fire element, cold in the morning, warm at midday, cooling at night. The breeze, lovely constant reminder. And then whatever else is, um, that's just the sort of the immediate changing phenomena. But if we look around, we look at this this landscape, you know, I come back every year and it's always changing. It's always different, different seasons, different climate, different, you know, moisture, rain, snowmelt, grasses, wildflowers, right? just always changing. And we look at this meadow and it's just, it's nothing but change, right? This new life emerging, grasses, flowers. Nice walking down by the the river and the ponds where the daisies are just about to burst. As because it comes this whole carpet of daisies along this near bank here, and you know we see life emerging. You know, spring life, green, and then the decaying, the 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 withering, the dry, the dead grasses and flowers and trees. And so we get, you know, this constant reminder, just like this beautiful old ponderosa pine that's been standing there for, well, I've been coming 25 years and it looked similar. (laughs) A few less branches now and uh, beautiful expression of decay and change, right? And now becomes an, a, a, an abode of all kinds of nests and, and places for birds to perch, and <coughs> hawks to hunt. The top of the top of Mount Everest is marine sandstone, as in sandstone that was at the bottom of the ocean. You know, it's wild to think change, right? Even the most solid things, changing, moving, tectonic plates. No experience of it with the light and seasons changing. And so that that being immersed in that does something. You know, it, 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 it starts to rub off. We see this just life moving the sand pouring through our fingers. Nothing, nothing is solid. Nothing, nothing stable. Nothing has stasis. And we know that in our inner experience. We look at our thoughts and our emotions and sensations and breath, and right, we know that we pay a lot of attention to that in the immediacy of mindfulness practice. But to have that mirrored outside, and we just, you know, bathe in that. You know the the characteristic that we would have talked to one of the characteristics of phenomena transient changing 
even though we, 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 we keep insisting that it not do that. <laughs> we, we protest when things change and we get reactive when they fall away and morph and, you know. And, and here we just keep dropping into the naturalness, change, dropping, shifting, moving. Nothing to hold on to because nothing's around long enough. This is um, uh, probably my first Dharma poem I ever came across by Zen Master Kukai, who was a renowned Zen master, uh, founder of a lineage, and then and then removed himself to the mountains. And he says, "You ask me why I entered the mountain, deep and cold." Awesome, surrounded by steep peaks and grotesque rocks. A place that's painful to climb and difficult to descend, wherein reside the gods of the mountains and the spirits of trees. Have you not seen, or have you not seen, the peach and plum blossoms in the royal garden? They will be in full bloom now, pink and fragrant, now opening in the April showers, now falling in the spring gales, flying high and low all over the gardens, the petal garden the petals scatter. Have you not seen, or have you not seen, the water gushing up in the divine spring of the garden? No sooner does it arise that it flows away forever. Thousands of shining lines flow as they come forth, flowing into an unfathomable abyss. Turning and whirling, they flow on forever, and no one knows where they will stop. Have you not seen, or have you not seen, the billions who lived in China and Japan None have been immortal from time immemorial. Ancient sage kings or tyrants, good subjects or bad, who can enjoy, enjoy eternal youth? Noble men and lowly alike, without exception, die away. They have all died, reduced to dust and ashes. The singing halls and dancing stages have become the abode of foxes, transient as dreams, bubbles, lightning, and a summer cloud. Have you not seen, or have you not seen, this has been man's fate? How can you alone live forever? Thinking of this, my heart always feels torn. You too are like the sun going down in the western mountains, or a living corpse whose span of life is nearly over. Futile would be my stay in the city. Away, away, I must go, I must not stay there. Release me, for I shall be master of the great void. I have never tired of watching the pines and rocks at Mount Koya. The limpid stream of the mountain is the source of my inexhaustible joy. Discard pride in earthly gains. Do not be scorched in the burning house. Discipline in the woods alone lets us soon enter the eternal realm. So we come to the woods, as Thoreau said, to live deliberately. To confront these facts, one of the facts is transience. And out of transience, um, the second thing that I think is most striking in nature is death. Death is everywhere. Like this tree, like the grasses. Someone was talking about a, a deer, a deer rotting up in the upper meadow. You know, we come across bones and skulls and, and antlers and... Uh, 
um, you know, just you know, the evidence of life changing, morphing, passing. I used to teach these kayaking retreats up in Alaska, which I keep wanting to do again. And we would be there in the in the inside passage in these remote islands, and we would be there in the peak of the salmon runs. And um, it's amazing. Talk about impermanence and death. Is this particular salmon run? Fifty-five million salmon returning after a three-year migration in the Pacific of Alaska and towards Japan and back. And uh, you know, streaming upwards up the creeks and and, and uh, rivers and estuaries to spawn and mate and die. And it's just, and it's just the whole the whole sea is jumping with fish, so many. And there's this march of death. It's incredibly profound and sobering and moving. And I teach down in Baja and, and on those kayaking retreats the the shoreline's littered with it's like a cemetery of of bones and you know sea urchins and crabs crab shells and um, you know, starfish and you know all kinds of things washed up in the storms and you're just sitting sitting on the beach just full of organisms that you know dissolved into sand and it's very Sobering, you know. It's a line from the Mahabharata, classic um, Hindu text. And there's a line that says, What is the most wondrous thing in the world? What is the most amazing thing in the world? People uh, looking at others dying and thinking that will never happen to them. Because we do, right? We have a certain amnesia and denial, and um, you know, unless unless we've had up close contact, you know, loved ones and family, and it brings it home. And one of the things I love about nature and this tree is such a beautiful example of that is the naturalness. Right? It's just you know the the naturalness of the cycles, birth, growth stasis, decay, and death. And there's even beauty in it, in, in that tree. It's, it, it's exquisite in its presence and its, you know, decay. One of the things I love, I, don't, I didn't recall seeing them in the meadow we were doing Qigong, but maybe you came across them the, when the, the old pines and the firs you know, they've fallen and then they're disintegrating into the soil. So often all you see is a line in the, in the earth and just crumbly bark, you know, and it takes, you know, sometimes decades, if not centuries, sometimes those to really dissolve. You just see this line of, of tree that's now, that's now dust and being, you know, re-metabolized by organisms into the soil. And, and it's very beautiful. There's an elegance to it. And so to, to 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 bring this to reflection, you know, there's a, um, we don't talk so much about reflection 
in this practice, and, and we're not generally encouraging it in the sitting, but I think when we're outside in nature, it's very valid, very valuable to be reflecting. You know, you walk past a, a skull or a beautiful dead ponderosa, and we, and we reflect. This, too, just like me, at some point will be like this. All life turn, returns back to the soil yeah. in a very real way. Another thing that I enjoy about the immersion outside in the wilderness um, is one can leave behind to some degree linear time and we seem to live more and more caught up in nanoseconds and minutes and hours and schedules and calendars and online calendars and you know we're just like running from appointment to appointment and meeting to meeting and um, and time feels very constricted and, and and this precious resource and commodity and then we come outside to a wilder place where you know there's no clock time here, there's no minutes, there's no seconds and hours, it's just, there's a certain kind of timelessness. There's, there's cycles, right? There's, there's, of course, there's the solar cycles and the lunar cycles and, um, you know, seasons and, right, there's, there's definitely markers for the passing of time, but it's a different kind of time. It's a natural time. It seems to have a lot more spaciousness in it not carved up. And sometimes when we let our linear time go, we can we can, you know, sense into timelessness which has infinite space in it. Mm. You know, the the present moment at times can seem vast. It's this one seamless now, which it actually is. It's just a, it's a seamless, timeless now. The past has gone. The future is an idea. And even the present moment is a concept. But, the, you know, but we have to have, using language, some, some, word for this ever-present nowness, here-ness. I was, I led a backpack trip down the Grand Canyon a couple of years ago. It was very arduous. I won't do it again. <laughs> it was really brutal. It was we did 10 miles down, 40-pound packs in the first day, and really gnarly path, crumbly, dangerous, and, uh, and then, you know, and then you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, there's only one way to go, because not many hikes along the river, down and up, three days to get back up, and, um, but it's beautiful, we hiked in a place where the the rivers you know, down towards, I forget, the, 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 the oldest rock strata, some of you may know what it's called. Um, it's like 
to Vishnu. Vishnu, yeah, oh, great name, Vishnu. Vishnu Strata, Vishnu Schist, right? Schist, Vishnu Schist, right? 1.2 billion years old, something's dark, gnarly, black and gray. It's just wild, it's really primal, primeval. And um, it feels old, it's old. Time, like time, it's just inc- you know, it blows the mind away. It's you know, it's inconceivable to imagine these these vast times, time scales, you know, and, it, and it just like as just like when we come outside, we get a different perspective. When we're around that which is old, like really old, deep time, it, it I know it's like the it's like the mind. The mind that's always busy trying to figure it out just, you know, surrenders. It's like you look up at the night sky, sky, and it's just vast, and you get quiet. If you're not trying to figure out the constellations, and it's like, wow, it's like billions and billions of stars, and billions and billions of solar systems and planets, and and it's too much for our little mind, and we just. Rest in that don't know mind. So, an interesting little slice of uh, experience out here that I like and I like to point to is. Um, that it challenges our notions of perfection. And what, what, what does perfect mean? What, what is a perfect tree? What is a perfect aspen? What is a perfect pine tree? What is a perfect rock? Right? And we could all go collect 40 of our favorite rocks that we think are perfect. And they're all different and unique and some are chipped and some are color and some are stripes and some are, you know, got, you know, who knows what kind of minerals in. And you know, I, th- I think about this particularly with trees that, you know, we look at like this tree, this ponderosa that I keep referring to. And it has a certain, it's perfect in its own way, right? You know, we don't, we, we, d- we, we bring less our you know, perfecting mind state. Oh, well, it could do with a little more, you know, a little more, you know, girth on the bottom and, you know, a little more, you know, fluffiness on the top and a little more branches over on the left because it's lopsided. (laughs) You know, we just appreciate it. It's just, it's just, it is. It's lopsided, it's crooked, it's bent, it's gnarled, it's missing pieces. And it's beautiful, right? It has its own charm, its own wild perfection. And then we look in the mirror and we go, well, that needs some work and you know, that needs some work. And, you know. But if we could look at ourselves as part of nature, right? aging like everything is aging, and getting more gnarled and, you know, weather-beaten like nature, it's like, you know, sometimes that can rub off. It's just, we're just, you know, we're perfect in our own way 
in the same way that the trees are perfect in their own idiosyncratic, gnarled way. Yeah, think about the, the markings on the aspen trees, right? So some of you may not know that the markings on the aspen trees are mostly from the from the, the elk, there's herds of elk that, that you know that come through here in the fall from the high country and then come through in the spring on the way to the high country. And they in the fall when they're mating, they've got their rack of antlers and they're rubbing the, the itchy um, fur off the antlers so they use the aspen tree you'll see all these fresh gouged marks one year next year it'll be blackened and 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 it has a certain beauty to it right even though it's gouged and pockmarked and scratched and you know beaten up just like us it's a poem from miss oliver it's called the ponds Every year the lilies are so perfect. I can hardly believe their lapped light crowding the black midsummer ponds. Nobody could count all of them. The muskrats swimming among the pads and grasses can reach out their muscular arms and touch only so many. They are that rife and wild. But what in this world is perfect? I bend closer and see how this one is clearly lopsided. That one wears an orange blight, and this one is a glossy cheek half nibbled away, and that one is a slumped purse full of its own unstoppable decay. Still, what I want in my life is to be willing to be dazzled, to cast aside the weight of facts, and maybe even to float a little above this difficult world. I want to believe I'm looking into the fire of a great mystery, I want to believe the imperfections are nothing, the light is everything, that it is more than the sum of each flawed blossom rising and fading, and I do. So may we behold ourselves with that lens of seeing ourselves as perfectly imperfect. So another teaching that gets revealed very poignantly and and evidently is the teachings of interconnection, of interdependence, causality. This is a key teaching of the Buddha. Everything arises out of conditions. Everything is connected and interdependent in, in innumerable ways. So my favorite example of that, of that is, um, you know, we, we're here for, what, a week? And we're drinking from the spring. So we're drinking from, you know, from the, the melted snow and the rain that gets into the spring, into the water table. So since we're mostly water, 70 plus percent water, and after a week of drinking from this spring, we are mostly Vallecitos Mountain spring water. <laughs> we, could, we, could, we could bottle ourselves and sell it, you know. 
and, and it's not just a nice idea. It's true. Like, you, you know, we, we have this interesting notion, like we drink stuff and we eat stuff and then we excrete it and we think we're sort of the same person. And it's like, like, like as if that hasn't sort of somehow become us. Right? But just as we're eating this amazing food that's becoming us, becoming our cells and tissues and bones and blood, the water, we're becoming the mountain. Becoming the spring, it's it's I I love and I it's, I love it when I'm camping by a stream and I'm just drinking from the stream all weekend. Like I'm becoming the stream. I am not separate from the stream. We are way more connected than we realize. You know, we're we're all you know looking at melted snow right now. <laughs> yeah. And it, it does take a little conceptual like really. That's weird. But it's you know it's sometimes the reflection is the doorway to the insight, you know. So when you're drinking the water, right, really take a moment to reflect. Oh, this is from the spring. This is becoming my tissues and my tears, my blood. And we've been exploring all the ways that we're intimately interdependent, intertwined, moved by so much here. Just notice how your mood changes depending on where you are, what you're looking at, how your body temperature, right? The the four elements that we may do a little meditation on the four elements. We're so influenced in the fire element. As soon as the sun comes out, or disappears, or as soon as a wind element picks up, it influences our temperature, our mood, our thoughts, sense of well-being. So I think it's a really helpful thing to pay attention to, to notice how our inner landscape is constantly being influenced by the outer landscape. And to some extent, our own landscape influences the outer lands- lands- landscape, especially the, the, the animals and the flies and birds. You know, we're, we're living in causal universe, and so we're living right now in Vyasitos that's subject to its own causes and conditions. And now, mm-hmm. for many years, but particularly this year, being influenced by climate change, which is causing a, you know, a, 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 I forget the word, but you know, basically drought system in the southwest. Right? So the, the you know, I've never seen the ranch this dry in 25 years. And um, you know, it's a direct result of climate change. And um, you know, nature is you know so desperately under assault with the influence and the effect of that of, of our human emissions and and you know, asking us to wake up to that, to our impact, to our interdependent relationship.
And then uh, an area that I think is really interesting to explore in our, in our life on the mountain is to um, is to um, explore the sense of self, and 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 and, and in particular the changing nature of self and the interdependent nature of self as we're outside and how our sense of self, self-referencing and understanding of who we are can be quite uh, impacted and we can have some very interesting insights and that can happen in many ways. So one example, maybe you're sitting alone somewhere, you're sitting up a hill, or you're sitting by a tree, or you're looking, you have a view of the mountain, and you're sitting quietly, there's no one around, and you get very quiet, and that subject-object duality of me here, mountain over there, me looking, me trying to be mindful dissolves as just awareness phenomena happening by themselves. And the sense of self for those moments disappears. There's just what's here. Seeing, breeze, mountain, song. And it's a very sweet, empty, quiet place that we can touch more easily I would say outside. There's a great poem from Chinese poet Li Po from like 1500 years ago. I think at least a thousand years ago, a long time ago. And um, he writes, so he's, he's obviously a mountain hermit meditator by the poem and he says, and you can look out while you're listening to this poem, it's a short poem, just look, look up at the sky and the mountain. He says, the birds have vanished into the sky and the last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. The birds have vanished into the sky, the last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. Or we sit together, the tree and me, until only the tree remains. Or we sit together, the pond and me, until only the pond remains. Or we sit together with the bird song and me, until only the bird song remains. The sense of self, self-referencing, somebody looking, seeing, having the experience just dissolves. We get quiet. And in that quiet, we feel a sense of peace, or oneness, or unity, or mergedness, or we sense sense of dissolving, sense of emptiness, vastness, presence, stillness. And this experience is not uncommon, right? especially after we've been out here a little while and we've learned to and not be so caught up in the busyness of our mind. And there are times we're just, you know, quite touched, quite intimate with something quite simple, a tree fluttering in the breeze, 
those moments can be life-changing. They can shatter our illusion or idea or construct of what identity and self is. Because if self and identity can dissolve like that and merge into nothingness or vastness, then what does that mean about my sense of self and my identity? Maybe not as real or as solid or as substantial as I take it to be. So we get to see how the sense of self ebbs and flows. I was just writing about this. I'm writing a, a book I may have mentioned, and I was writing about this fluid nature of self. I might, I might read it one, uh, tomorrow. And one of the things that happens is, so maybe you, so you're having the experience, you're just sitting by the river, there's just a sense of dissolving, quiet, peace, just the mountain. And then you hear the bell for, I don't know, for the meditation. And suddenly the, the bell shatters that kind of sweet, quiet, dissolving. And then you know, oh, what time is it? I'm going to be late. Oh no, I don't want to be late. I'm always late. I hate being late. And suddenly the sense of self crunches back. And we take birth in that moment in the one who doesn't want to be late. In fear, in a little graspy, a little tense. And then we remember, oh, it's just lunch. Oh, just lunch. Okay. And we just let that go. Thought goes. That self now a constri constricted self softens. And then someone we notice, someone we notice, someone's walking up, and they're going to walk right past where we're sitting. And again, the sense of self reconstitutes itself. Who is this person? What do they want? Am I safe? Is this okay? How's my hair? <laughs> do I look spiritual? You know? Do I look as to be friendly and full of metta? Or do I stay still and look really calm and deep? <laughs> so the sense of self, you know, and it's you know, we have to laugh because we all do it, you know, it's just what the mind does. And we're back in me land and you know and who is this? And am I liked? And am I fit in? And, 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 and all that drama. And, and then they walk past, and it's like they didn't even notice us, and they were lost in their own minds anyway. So <laughs> a whole bunch of like a story. And, and then we relax, and, the, and then it's oh, right. Oh, and the birds are still swooping over the pond, catching flies, and, you know, and that, that sense of, you know, that agitatedness that comes from selfing softens again. And, Eventually we get up and we go for lunch and something else happens. And you know. But pay attention to this selfing process, how at times it's very, very uh, tight, like um, you know, you maybe you're late for the meditation and you feel very self-conscious and, oh no, what's everyone going to think? I'm just disturbing people and you feel very you know, bound. And then you go for walking meditation, that all that just d dissolves, and you're just really you're walking barefoot on the land, and there's just there's just sweetness. It's just you, not even you. There's just touching sensation happening. And so 
just notice I, I, I talk about it as the accordion. This accordion, the sense of self, gets tight, expands, dissolves, comes back, opens, closes. So with awareness, we can be mindful of this process and not be caught in any of it. Not buying into the rigid, tight, small self and not grasping after the dissolved one. Right? Just, just being mindful of the ebb and flow. Another Mary Oliver poem, one of my favorites. It's called Such Singing in the Wild Branches about returning thrush. It was spring and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness. And that's when it happened. When I seemed to float, to be myself a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands in the glass hour stopped for a pure moment while gravity sprinkled upwards like rain. Rising, in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds. All of them was singing, and of course, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And so we can have those moments with this, this, this you know, the, the robins here and the nesting and singing and calling and, and you know, at times we can get just quiet and something dissolves and mysterious, it's vast and beautiful and rare. This is one of the fruits of our practice. <coughs> so I could go on, but I think I'm going to pause here and you know, just to think for yourself what what other wisdom teachings, dharma teachings get touched for you. Right? I've touched on some of some key ones, but there are many others that that becomes the conduit for insight. You know, another one is letting go, right? You see you're sitting by the aspen trees and you see the tree just let a leaf go. And it falls and it's and it just goes right into your heart. It's like a release, you know. 
and many other ways we're moved, touched, and inspired. So I'd like to invite you to bring some of these teachings to mind and uh, ways that nature is um, impressing upon you, inspiring, touching. Sometimes we get, we just get touched by beauty. We see a flower, this beautiful pink wild rose, walking up to the the, the rocks up there, and or the bird song, or and it's it's something so beautiful it's almost hard to bear, and and it makes us reflect. Well, what is beauty? And why is it that we're touched by beauty? And the question I often ask is, why is nature so beautiful? <laughs> you know, we could be living on an ugly planet, but we're not. We're living on a, you know, for whatever reason, our hearts and our, you know, this apparatus perceives nature and experiences it as beauty. You know, that, that just that itself is mysterious. Why is that? Why is aspen trees leaves shimmering in the breeze? Why does that touch us? Like it, it, for me, it, does, it moves me. It's mysterious. Who knows why? It's, maybe it doesn't even. Do, maybe, you know, in, in the Dharma tradition, generally, we're not so interested in the why question because who knows? What matters is we are moved. We are touched, and just to let that season us. Right, let's just sit for a moment. through our practice may we be open and receptive for the teachings of the Dharma as we immerse ourselves in the wild